0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, since the first Sunday in October, we have been telling one big story, the true story of the whole world. Each Sunday, we have been looking at how the Bible tells the story of not just Israel, not just the church, not just those who choose it, but how the Bible tells the story of all peoples in all places, across all nations, and across all times. We've said that we are storytelling creatures, that we all have some overarching narrative about the how and why of human history and our place within it. All of us wrestle with questions like what's the meaning of our lives? What's the goal of history? What am I supposed to do with myself? And the Bible makes a comprehensive claim to be answering those questions for us. It is the story of everything. Back in October, we began in chapter 1 in the garden, where we saw that God's purpose is to have a people that experience and enjoy His presence in His place. But then in chapter 2, we saw how all of that was disrupted. The divine ideal was fractured. Conflict, curse, all of that was now extended to, to wage war on creation itself. Chapter 3, we saw God's goodness, being rich in mercy, responding to the fall with a promise. He promises to undo the fall through the, the descendants of Abraham. Then, chapter 4, we saw the story of the Exodus. Chapter 5, the giving of the law. Chapter 6, the giving of the kings. Chapter 7, the giving of the temple. Chapter 8, the exile, which is sort of the fall repeated. And then, in chapter 9, we turned a corner when we were introduced to the character of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The one in whom all of God's promises find their big, fat, juicy yes. Then in chapter 10, the giving of the Spirit, where God's people are now filled with God's presence and now enjoy and experience his presence in a way that no people have ever done so beforehand. Last week, Aaron taught chapter 11, how God's people are gathered from every place who are called to be and make disciples as the church. This week, we end our series. We turn our attention to finales. How will the true story of the whole world end? Now this is not like any other story because this one hasn't quite ended yet. We read Tom Sawyer and we read Harry Potter and we know how those stories end, right? Because those have a finale. We haven't firsthand experienced the finale yet. So we turn our attention to the future and what the Bible has to say about what's going to happen in the future. We'll turn shortly to Revelation chapter 21. Now before we do that, One thing we want to acknowledge is that the the, the finale to the Christian story is one of those places where our story runs up against rival stories. A couple of years ago, I read a book that asked this question. Is the story of human history, is human history a tragedy or a comedy? He quoted an author, uh, Robin Schneider, who said this. She said, you know how they categorize Shakespeare's plays, right? If it ends with a wedding it's a comedy. And if it ends with a funeral, it's a tragedy. Now, when you, when, you, when you read comedy here, don't think Steve Martin or Jerry Lewis or Will Ferrell. Rather, think about the ending. If it ends in a funeral, it's a tragedy. If it ends in a comedy, a uh, wedding rather, it's a comedy. Schneider continues. She turns to your life, to my life, and she says, so that means we're all living tragedies because we all in the same way, and it isn't with a wedding. Now, i suspect that if you're here, if you spend any time in this life, you experience life as a tragedy, right? We look around, and it's abundantly clear that everything changes, that everything decays, that nothing lasts. We all die. Death is the end for all of us, right? Our stories are headed towards funerals. There's a time when Trevor was not on this earth, and there will be another time when Trevor is not on this earth. Christmas can be hard for many of us. For so many, so many of the people that we once shared this holiday with are with us no longer, and so life can feel tragic. And according to the sort of strictly materialistic telling of the story, it's not just that my life is headed towards a funeral, it's that, well, everything is. There's scientists who theorize that the sun will expand and overwhelm the earth, ultimately killing humanity and all life on the earth, and all of the stories we tell will all of a sudden be snuffed out. And so we ask, is this story a tragedy? I mean, even during the brief spark of life that we experience, everything is tainted with this lurking shadow of loss and death. This is a life where children die, where ty- tyrants rage, where the guilty go unpunished, where cancer stills, kills, and destroys, where all of us just on this side of a tragic phone call that could change everything. And so how does the true story of the whole world end? Is it headed to a funeral or A wedding? Now, as we think about the end times, let me just offer a few words about the end times and about the book of Revelation. First word, just to sort of say as a, as a kind of precursor. First, the New Testament actually teaches us that we are in the end times now. And that, in fact, we have been in the end times since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. A couple of examples. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls, uh, Peter says that in, in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, the Spirit indicates that the last days are at hand. That was way back when at the day of Pentecost. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews says, In the former days God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The end times began when Jesus was raised from the dead. We have been living in the end times ever since. Remember this graphic. We've looked at this a couple of times throughout this series. The coming of the Lord Jesus, represented by the cross, he brings the kingdom to bear. The kingdom has bled into the present, though we acknowledge it hasn't yet fully undone the kingdom of this world. And what we've said is that we live kind of in those candy cane stripe looking overlap of the ages. That's where you and I live right now, and the overlap of the end and the old age. We live in the end times now, and that's important. We'll revisit this in just a second. The second thing to acknowledge when it comes to the topic of the end times is that we need to distinguish between those things which are of first importance and those things which are of secondary importance. Those things which are of first importance and those things which are of secondary importance. Of first importance are things like this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will return. Of first importance is information, facts like this. Jesus will resurrect our bodies and he will renew the world. Also, Jesus will judge evil and he will reward his people. These are the sorts of things that are of first importance when we talk about the end. Uh, The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, they both, when they speak about the end times, they can be frustratingly terse. Both of these creeds say this about the end times, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Bada-bang, bada-boom. That's what they say. The Nicene Creed says we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Once again, bada-bang, bada-boom. That's what the creeds have to say to us about the end times. So it's important for us to have categories of first importance and secondary importance when it comes to the end. Of secondary importance are questions like this. What is the role of ethnic, physical Israel in the end? Of secondary importance is a question like this. What is the nature and timing of the millennium? When is the tribulation? What's the exact nature of the new heavens and the new earth? What will we do when we get there? Will we ride T-Rexes? You know, I don't know. Hopefully so. We need to distinguish between first and secondary importance on these matters. Now, when I say that, don't hear me saying that you shouldn't have convictions. You should. It's right for you to work hard to understand the trickier passages as it relates to the end and to have convictions about those things. It's right for you to form them and to try and persuade your friends over them. It's right for pastors to have them and to teach them, especially when they're the same as mine. And when we say secondary importance, we're not saying unimportance, right? We're saying secondary importance. So we're just saying that we got to hold to things with the appropriate degrees of intensity and rigidity, right? Which may be different than the settings that you grew up around. That was the case for me. Very detailed lines were drawn about particulars, and these lines were those things which distinguished faithfulness from unfaithfulness. And we just want to say, hey, there's a difference between those things that are most essential and secondarily essential, and we want to have the right kind of grip on each of those things. Does that make sense? Now, if you're hoping that I would do a deep dive on some of those secondary questions, prepare to be thoroughly disappointed this morning. Now, a few words about the book of Revelation. The Revelation is unique of all of the books in Scripture because it's three things. First, it's prophecy. Second, it's apocalyptic literature. And third, it's a letter. When reading Revelation, it's important for us to think about what Revelation is intending to do. It's written for a people in a particular time and place, and it's intended to be discernible and useful for the generation of Christians to whom it was written. Does it make sense? Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's a picture of a glorious vision of the future, an unveiling of the cosmic story, what's been happening across history. And it's vital to remember that this is all done for the saints that John is writing to. Specifically, he wants to encourage the people of God to persevere and resist the seduction of worldliness. Chapters 1 through 18 paint a picture of God's working across history with incredible dramatic imagery. Chapters 19 through 22 shift into a discussion about the end, the grand finale, the final chapter of the true story of the whole world, where every narrative thread and promise and hint is finally cashed in here. Turn to Revelation 21 and look at verse 1. this passage, we have two beholds. In verse 5, he says, the, the, the one giving John the vision says, Write this down. These are trustworthy and true. Pay attention to these two things. First, verse 5. Behold, I make all things new. Now think back to chapters 1 and 2 of this teaching series. Chapter 1, the garden. What takes place in the garden? God creates a good world. And there we said that God makes a good world. He declares it to be very good. And mankind is given dominion to sub-create and sub-rule and enjoy his presence in this world, this literal physical world. And the tragedy of chapter 2, which is all the more tragic when you think about the goodness of God's creation, is that human sin is introduced into the picture and it fractures God's good world. Everything becomes marred by conflict and curse. Man, woman, the serpent, even the ground is cursed as a result of human rebellion, and so, what's the promise? What's, what's the promise of the vision here in Revelation 21, verse 5? I'll make all things new. Verse 1 John sees a new heaven and a new earth, some kind of renewed physical world. I'm likely picking up on the prophets, the vision of the prophets in chapters of Isaiah, like Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 25. This picture of a renewed cosmos. Now, something to think about, and maybe this has not ever occurred to you, but Jesus, in part, returns not just to save his people, but to save the world. Psalm 98 says that the seas and the rivers and the hills rejoice before the coming of the Lord. Why? Because he will judge the earth in righteousness. Because creation itself longs for release from cruelty and brokenness. Longs to be liberated from decay and wickedness and death. Romans chapter 8 says that creation is groaning in labor pains for redemption. Like a woman who has come full turn and she can't sleep or turn over and she's just groaning. Creation groans to be redeemed. It aches for redemption. This is gloriously good news. And it's good news for trees and rivers and rocks and streams and hills and plains. And they repeat their sounding joy, right? It's bad news for thorns, sin, and serpents. I mean, this has been the hope since nearly page one. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham is looking to a city whose builder and founder is God. Abraham himself looked forward to this day when the city would descend from heaven and all things would be made right. This is the promise to Adam and Eve that God would crush the serpent and he would one day lift the curse. The promise of the land, the promise of the prophets of a king and a kingdom, all of it arrives on this day. And what's it like there? Verse 4. God will wipe away Every tear from the eyes of his people. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. The old age has expired. The kingdom of this world is over. There will be only permanent wholeness and holiness and purity. It's, what's, what's interesting is to look at the things that we're told will be there and the things that won't be there. What will be there is a new city and a new earth and, a, and, and new heavens, the presence of God with his people. What won't be there is mourning or tears or crying or pain, because the former things have passed away. Verse 1, John says that the sea is no more. Israel was not a seafaring people. Sea was a picture of chaos for them. So there's no more sea. It seems probable what he's saying is that there's no more chaos and tumult. There's only peace. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says that we're going to one day be given a new heavens and a new earth. Listen to this. Where righteousness dwells. Where righteousness dwells. No longer does righteousness sort of appear for a second and then evaporate like snow in South Carolina winters. But a world where righteousness dwells. Where it digs down deep and lays foundations and is the very air we breathe. Have you ever been in the company uh, uh, of a person who's just refreshingly good, with a capital G? They're kind and they're understanding and they're hospitable, but you also know that they stand for something. There's a kind of joyous righteousness about this person. You feel elevated just by their company. Imagine a whole world suffused with that kind of joyous righteousness, where, again, the trees and the rocks and the rivers and the streams, all of it is righteous. No chilling wind nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. Behold, I make all things new. Verse 6, let's keep reading. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment, to the one who conquers he will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, it's for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The glorious promise here is that God will rectify all things. The meek will finally inherit the earth. The faithful will be rewarded. If you're thirsty, you come to the right place. You'll be given from the waters of life. No need for money here. The one who perseveres, who remains faithful, his inheritance, his heritage will be given from the Lord Jesus. This is a picture of a place where evil finally loses, where God vindicates the martyr and he judges the wicked. A place of remaking, of purifying, of undoing all evil. It's a place where Jesus comes in judgment on all of those who persist in evil. Here we're told that Jesus will judge the coward, the faithless, the detestable, and so on. Michael Reeves, theologian, said it like this He said, Jesus will come like the rising sun, chasing away all darkness. It will usher in the eternal summer of New Jerusalem. And on that day, the glory of God will suffuse all creation and fill all the earth. No more night. And what that includes is judgment on those who refuse to repent and be pardoned, transformed by the Lord Jesus. What their future is, according to Revelation 21, verse 8, is death. The second death. Hell. Now, sometimes as we think about the Christian story, one of the things that we can... Kind of wrestle with is this notion of God's wrath. What do you think of when you think of God's wrath? What do you think of when you think of the wrath of Jesus in passages like Revelation 21 8? Revelation in particular, and Christians over the centuries have actually found comfort knowing that God is a God who responds to evil with judgment. I read a couple of years ago a, a, crea- a Croatian theologian who Recounting on his early years in theology, would think of God's wrath as something that was unbecoming of Jesus, that it was a kind of medieval leftover from old ways of thinking about the Bible. That The civilized God of Christianity should not be a wrathful God until this particular guy experienced the horror of civil war in his home country. Genocide, mass displacement, unspeakable atrocities. And he realized, he looked around at the evil that was being committed against his friends, his family, his people. And he, he, and he asked, who will do something about this evil? And that's when it dawned on him. The doctrine of God's wrath is gloriously good news. Here's a question. Does evil exist in the world? And is there anyone who will do anything about the evil that exists in the world? The true story of the whole world's answer to this is a resounding yes. The Lord Jesus will judge evil. And though evil may seem to triumph in this life, it will not triumph in the end. Because of this glorious hope that Jesus will return and he will judge all wrong. That Michael Reeves quote continues. Let's look at this. The fact that Christ is the judge of all the earth is not evidence that there is a vicious, unpleasant side to his character that will reveal itself at the end. No. The second coming is no cause to make us waver in love for him. Quite the opposite. The earth-shaking power of the lamb does not mean that the most lovely, loving man has changed in his character. It is rather that his cause, his character, his light is victorious. The lamb wins. And his truth will drive out all lies. His beauty will drive out all ugliness. His goodness will drive out all evil. The lamb wins. But the twist is, and the thing that the gospel confronts us with first is this. You are a part of the evil that the Lord Jesus will judge. You and I, each of us, contribute to the evil of the world. We downplay it. We justify it. We skirt around it. We diagnose it. But it's evil. It's evil. And deserving of God's judgment on the last day. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers pardon. Forgiveness. Repent and receive the forgiveness that he offers. That's the meaning of the cross. That Jesus came down in the middle of this story. And he bears the judgment for his people. The wrath of God falling on him for you, friend. Jesus then calls us to turn from our ways, to turn from our way of doing things, to turn to him and trust and be saved, be spared from his judgment, to become Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's something that each of us in this room have done at some point in our lives. Many of us, I should say, in this room. We have turned to receive forgiveness of Jesus. And it's through the death of Jesus, this grace and mercy, this pardoning blood of Christ shed for his bride that makes this next bit so doggone good. Let's look at the second Behold. Look back up at verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 2, we have a vision of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like what? A bride. Then in verse 3, the second behold, we end where we began. John announces, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The glorious promise that's present here is that God is arriving to be with his people. Now, does anybody um, have a tendency to like going to people's houses and admiring bookshelves? Get to somebody's house, and you look at the bookshelves, and you can either be really impressed by them, or you can big-time judge them, you know? (laughs) Don't, come, don't look at my bookshelves, please, when you come to my house. Look at the one in my office. Look at that, those bookshelves, not the one in my house. Um, what are those things that are on bookshelves that prevent books from falling off the bookshelf? What are they called? Bookends. They're usually on this side and on this side to kind of keep the thing contained. Now, what's interesting is that in the Hebrew Bible, one of the ways that you see authors making a point is that it, use, it uses bookends, sometimes called inclusios. Psalm 8 is a great example of this. It starts with this, the Lord, oh God, you are majestic, you are high and exalted above all things. And there's this reflection about the nature of humanity. And then it ends with, oh God, you are high and majestic above all things. What it helps us to see is sort of its point. It's bookending a certain point. It wants us to have this particular takeaway. Now, when we arrive in Revelation chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22, we realize, wait a second. This book at the end has a lot of similarities with that book back at the beginning. For instance, Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God makes all things. Genesis twenty-one 5, we're told that God makes all things, what? New. The former things have passed away. The old age, the kingdoms of this world have been uprooted, brought under judgment. Genesis ch- chapter 2, there's a tree that's planted in the garden called the tree of life. Then in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 9, what makes an appearance once again? The tree of life. But my favorite of all of these bookends has to be how in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God in his grace and his goodness brings a man and woman together in the first marriage. And then what happens in Revelation 19 and 21? The bride and her bridegroom are finally united. A wedding. You know how they categorize Shakespeare's plays? If it ends with a funeral, it's a tragedy, but if it ends with a wedding... It might just be the true story of the whole world. So friend, Christian, you're here this morning. Listen to, listen to me. Your story is no tragedy. If you are a Christian this morning, you cannot experience tragedy. You may suffer. No, you will suffer. Your heart will break. You will befriend loss and loneliness and tragedy this side of eternity. Your body will break down. Your light will go out. Your body will fill a coffin. But Christian, that is not the end for you. Because on the last day, you will be raised to life with him, the Lord Jesus, and the new heavens and the new earth, and the glorious union of God and his people, the God who turns graves into gardens. All of this ends with a wedding party. Here's the grand promise of the renewal of all things for you, Christian. Just three things I'm just going to hit on real quick. I know our babies are losing it. First, Christian, you will inhabit a renewed world. Think about the third verse of the Christmas hymn we just sang, Joy to the World. What does it say? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, what? What? Far as the curse is found. You look around, you see all the places that the curse has touched, and rest assured, Jesus will bless and fix even that. There's a reason that heaven and nature sing, because they get it, because Jesus is returning to save them and make things right once again. And as good as things can be now on occasion, the cackle of a toddler. Strawberries, beautiful sunsets. We will inhabit a renewed world with the stain of the curse completely undone that is better and more full and more real than anything we've experienced this side of eternity. The former things will pass away. The kingdoms of this world will be gone. We will exist only in wholeness and holiness and purity forever. The promise for us Christians is we will inhabit a renewed world. But it gets even better. Number two, not only will the world be renewed, you will be renewed. All things will be made new. The world will be made new, and that includes you. This is the great Christian hope, and we need to tighten up our use of hope. You know, We, we use the word I had a, a friend pointed this out to me recently. We use the word hope to say things like, I hope the Braves win. I hope I get new socks tomorrow for Christmas. I hope it doesn't rain. But what is hope? In the Bible, hope is a kind of confidence, a surety, which anchors us in the present. For the Christian, it is this, the coming of Jesus. And this for us is more than a promise. It isn't just a promise because this already began 2,000 years ago when Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive and he will do for all things and for his people what was done for him. Listen to this from 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Can you imagine that? Christian, complete Christ-likeness one day. We will have a bodily existence on the other side of death. What does that mean? I have no idea. 1 Corinthians 15 says that, the mor- that mortality shall put on immortality. That the perishable shall put on imperishable. We will have new bodies like Jesus' body after his resurrection. Whole, fixed, complete But also, it's even better. Your heart will be made new. No envy, no bitterness, no regret, no lust, no anger, no anxiety, the poison of sin, the mental and spiritual fog, all obstructions to love and joy lifted forever. And we with unveiled faces, our weaknesses and our sin and our frailty will be healed and we will have the capacity to see and enjoy God as he is. We will be renewed with him. We'd be glorified with Christ. Here's the last thing. God's going to transform all things. He's going to transform you, even me. But here's the best part. You ready? Number three. You will see God. What's the joy of eternity? Is it that we're going to be reunited with loved ones? I'm going to see Papa Tucker again. Figures in Christian history. Is it going to be that we're going to be in a renewed world with riding dinosaurs? Again, hopefully. Is it that we'll feast with all of God's people across all times and places, a rich food uh, full of well-aged wine, as Isaiah says? What's the joy of eternity but this, Revelation 21.3? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The great reward of our faithfulness, the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, forever and ever, secure, forever blessed. The weight of glory beyond all comparison is that we get to see Jesus. The bride will behold her bridegroom, finally. Theologians of old used to talk about something called the beatific vision. The blessed hope of the Christian is that we were made for God like Eve for Adam, like stars for the sky, we are made for God and we will be with him and he will be our God and we will be his people. And what we behold by faith, what we look at through a, through a, through a mirror dimly, we will see with sight, with clarity and with fullness. We will see and enjoy God forever and ever and ever. Michael Reeves, again, says it like this, we can talk about all the wonders of new creation, All the wonders of bodies set free from sin and unrighteousness. But at the heart of it all, at the heart of Christian hope, is that we will be with him. It makes sense why we celebrate Advent. The joy and great hope of his first coming orients us to the joy and the great hope of his second coming. We eagerly await that Jesus will return just as he came. And for us, our story is no tragedy We will suffer and we will experience darkness. But to the one who perseveres, Christian, what awaits you is a wedding. What suffering can't this hope relativize? What hardship holds a candle to the promises that are extended to us in passages like Revelation 21? This, of course, is not intended to minimize our suffering at all. But the scriptures say that there is a glory that outweighs even that And I couldn't end without reading one more quote. One more quote. If you're familiar with the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis ends the story with this picture of the heroes of Narnia arriving at home. And I just have to read this for us. it be on the screen. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover in the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Though we say we talk about finales, the great Christian hope is a beginning, a happy beginning where each chapter is better than the one before, all by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus who saves us and welcomes us into his glad presence forever, Christian. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table. And at the Lord's table, we'd like to say that we look three directions. We look back to the blood of Jesus, who accomplished our redemption on our behalf, the cross. The juice and the bread remind us of the broken body and shed blood. We look outwards. To one another, the, the brothers and sisters with whom we share this meal, and the spirit of the Lord Jesus who is present with us as we eat. And we look forward. We look forward to the finale, which is the beginning. These are the hors d'oeuvres of that wedding supper that awaits us, church. Next few moments, I'm going to read a liturgy and invite you forward. The way to work is we'll have four stations, one here, one here, one here, one here. We'll ask everyone to go on the outside, grab the elements, and take them back to your seats. And then we'll take the elements all together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the incredible, the, the incredible promise that we're given in these scriptures that hold out this weight of glory that we cannot even conceive. We pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you'd give us hope. We pray that you would... Allow us to persevere through hardship with these promises that are extended to us. I pray that as we take the supper that we would be strengthened. That our hope in uh, your return would be renewed and that just as real and visceral as these elements are, would would you give us a sense of the, the realness and the surety of what you were gonna do for us one day, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have the joy of celebrating Christmas and we pray that as we celebrate, our hearts would be turned towards your return so that we can have hope even in darkness. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.